Amanda Whiting, the deputy editor of Unheard, and you are tuned into the Unpacked podcast starring Peter Franklin. He Hello. waved. That's not helpful <laughs> on the radio. Uh, and our capitalism editor, Charlie Pickles. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about three things. We're going to be talking about whether Alexa is corrupting the youth. That is the digital assistant from Amazon. We're going to be talking about driverless cars, something you've never heard about or read about on Unheard before. <laughs> and we're going to talk about Trump voters because they are always in season. Um, all three of these pieces have been written by Peter Franklin, and you can check them out before you listen to the rest of this, or you can learn about it right now. Uh, so, Peter, first, Alexa, are you turning my kid into a brat? Talking about digital assistants. What exactly are digital assistants? Well, they're, well, Siri on, if you've got a iPhone or uh, an iPad, basically they're computer apps you can talk to. I mean, they're fairly rudimentary at the moment. I only talk to Siri if I accidentally hit my phone. Well, exactly. That's because so far the artificial intelligence behind them isn't that good. But, you, you know... I'm they not sure. I don't, I'm really sorry to interrupt, but I'm not sure do. that's true. So, so when Siri I fan, was in, Charlie well, no, no, I don't use Siri. I've never used Siri. I'm a complete luddite on the whole with these things. But I happened to stay in an Airbnb that had an Alexa in it uh, in Dallas earlier this year, and I was really sceptical. But actually, I don't think they are that rudimentary. So you can actually ask Alexa to sing a song, and she will sing you a song. Wait, does she play the song, or does she just sing it in no, Alexa she just, voice? she just does it in Alexa voice, yeah. But still, I was <laughs> like nonetheless quite birthday? impressed, yeah. You're saying I well, don't need that in my life, Peter? <laughs> well, quite possibly. I don't know how empty your life is. But, so. <laughs> but I, it's fair right. to say that these systems are getting better all the time, and the the kind of naturalness of the conversation you can have with them is is coming along. I mean, I mean, you won't yet sort. They won't. They're, they're not yet going to sort of pass the Turing tests. You right. know, you know, it's a computer, but it's getting closer and closer and closer. And these things are spreading through people's houses. So the crucial point is that kids these days, including little kids. Are beginning to sort of grow up with these. Yeah, now, it's not when these weird kids are 20, they're going to have spent their entire formative years chatting away to these increasingly sophisticated um, computers who will be chatting back. Um, so the issue is what effect is this going to have on childhood development? Okay, what effect is it going to have on childhood development? Well, um, there's a great piece uh, on um, MIT Technology Review by Rachel Metz, and she says the real problem is that, um, or the immediate problem, is that kids can just say, do this for me, Alexa. Um, I want, do this, do that. The missing words are... <laughs> The magic wands. Did your mom and dad tell you? Now? <laughs> no, not now. <laughs> that was the one that got wrong. <laughs> please and thank you. So, you know, there was always this sort of old sort of science fiction nightmare that one day computers would finally throw off the human yoke and take over. The point that Rachel Metz make is actually quite um, the opposite, which is they're going to be so servile, so ready to take any amount of rudeness that it's actually going to sort of 
make kids think you can treat people this way as well because that's how you get what you want you just issue an instruction without any p's and q's and you know are we gonna you know sort of raise a whole generation of kids who are really quite rude well couldn't i mean in the same way a parent can restrict their television from playing like certain channels or certain types of content unless there's like an override code couldn't you sort of modify Alexa that she only does what you want her to do if you say please? Uh, well, I reckon that this could be the solution and that in time the tech companies may well offer a range of personalities and, you know, to sue every parent from the very liberal <laughs> to the extremely strict and you'll have a range of personalities that um, will be, you can sort of switch between and um, choose between rather, and um, that will determine what sort of infants that you bring up, wow. uh, which will be interesting. But I think one of the one of the things that struck me in the um, uh, unpacked Peter that you wrote was uh, the quote about um, so this this little girl. Hannah, Hannah. Ha exactly, yes. um, was uh, you know has an Alexa in her home. I can't remember how old she is, but but um, the interviewer asked kind of you know how do you see Alexa? Um, you know, obviously uh, Hannah knows it's not a human. But what struck me was that Hannah d did still feel that Alexa might have feelings in some way. Yeah, and, you know, she, she gets happy and exactly. Sad. She doesn't want Alexa to feel bad. So so there is an element of actually you know, kind of a, a sort of empathy, a sort of human element, perhaps, that children maybe are still demonstrating in their interactions. Well, I think that that's a really interesting issue is, you know, just how confused will children be about these sort of um, simulated personalities that they, 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 they share their childhoods with. Um, and I think maybe that some children know very well whether something is real or not, but that doesn't stop them from being absolutely horrible to it. You know, the, the sort of child who pulls the, the cat's tail <laughs> knows full well that there is a, there's an animal there that ought to be treated well, but, you know, enjoys the, um, the devilment of, of um, tormenting the poor creature. Um, and maybe there'll, you know, there'll be a sense in which they'll try and bully the um the digital assistants as well the issue is whether the digital assistants will be programmed to take this or to push back uh, i think it'll be interesting to see whether the tech companies offer this choice and what sort of choices parents make if the tech companies do give them these options um, another unintended effect, I think, is that no one will ever be named Alexa ever again. <laughs> like that name will just completely die out. Can that, that be an impact? Can we write about that? That, that, could, that could well be the case. Yeah, I don't. I wonder if any any series have been, yeah. have been christened yet. I don't know. Or like when you show up to your first year of school and you're like, Alexa, I know you. I got you at home. <laughs> yeah, and I think it could get a bit boring in the playground after the, you know. 10th or 100th time that you're <laughs> yeah, asked yeah. to do something like play a song. Right. Um, okay, so moving on. Next we're going to be talking about driverless cars. If you have been listening, thank you. But if you have not been listening a bunch, you might not know that Peter Franklin talks about driverless cars a lot, writes about driverless cars a lot. Um, actually, I've long wanted to ask you, do you know how to drive? 
I don't. Actually. That kind of feels like that is an explanation right there. (laughs) Well, um, yes, um, some of us are just sort of too clumsy and unobservant to to be allowed to drive. But, you know, obviously this will be a a real liberation and not just for sort of klutzers like me, but, you know, for heavily disabled people, for um, elderly people for people, well, children. Well, people who can't actually afford to buy and run a car and fill a tank and and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely, yes. But the question you're writing on this week is whether or not driverless cars will save our cities or ruin them. And you're, I mean, you're talking about our physical cities. You're talking about our roadways. That's right, yes. So what's up? Well, the issue is, given all the extra people that could be using driverless cars that currently can't use cars you have to drive yourself, um, will we see our roadways just completely packed? Um, and it might not just be, you know, people that can't drive at the moment, but imagine having a taxi service in your city at the moment, which was massively cheaper than not just Uber cheap, but, um, you know, a fraction of the cost of standard taxi services. Because there's no drivers to because have to pay. The, Yeah, if you, you know, the driver is the most expensive element in a taxi. Um, If, however, you take that out and you can offer the service for a fraction of the cost, would you find that a convenient thing to do? Probably yes. And so, you know, people will be using this a lot more. So how on earth are the roads going to take that much more demand? So what are some of the solutions that people who dream up solutions to future problems, what are they coming up with? Well, some, some of it is, comes from the driverless technology itself, that you, know, you can have cars dr- driving in careful coordination, so that the, um, obviously when people are driving, they need a, a decent stopping distance between each car. With computers, which are much more precision controlled, you can shrink that, so you can mm-hmm. make a bit more room that way. Um, if you haven't got cars parked everywhere, because when they're not being used, they can go off and do something else, um, then you're freeing up some road space there as well. But people say that even then, there's going to be a problem. Be so enough. what we need to do is somehow ration the, the, the road space, which is you know, what road charging schemes already in force in places like London already do. Um, but this, with this technology, the options for how you charge for roads, you know, multiple, multiply hugely. So you've got that much more of a sophisticated control system mm-hmm. to to let you do it. I mean, we see this in some places. I know in the U.S., um, right outside D.C., there's a highway that has an express lane, and when traffic is really bad, it costs more money to go onto the expressway, and when traffic is moving along quickly it's really really cheap to go on the express lane because why would you need to use it um and the only time it really ever comes up in the news is if there's been some sort of like incident or like even like a natural disaster which causes a huge impediment to traffic and at that exact same moment the price of using the expressway goes up really high and it, it looks sort of craven and bad um but you don't really hear about it so how would that be applied to this problem um well you know if you've got driverless cars, then you need a control system for it. And as part of the software that's driving all of these cars, you can incorporate links to um, charging systems 
so that you know you could get it finely down to the you know a charge per mile of road which varies according to what sort of road it is but would how this, heavily would this happen used? though kind of in real time you know like uber drivers right you get a surge price but the difference is that if you're trying to hail a, a, a an uber driver or you know book it on your app um then you can make the decision whereas if you're already on route somewhere is it going to be that suddenly you you know the price quadruples well maybe you tell your driverless car like this is the amount of money i'm willing to spend to take this journey and you have to find the route that sort of falls within the budget I've allotted you at the outset. how do you plan, outset? right? Because then you could be sent on a massive diversion that sends, I mean, it sounds like it's quite a, I mean, if you're a really wealthy person, it probably doesn't matter, right? If it quadruples, if it goes up by, you know, a factor right. of 10, the price, who cares? You've got plenty of money. You're going to get from A to B as, as quickly as you can. But if actually you're on a limited budget or say you're traveling to work and actually, you know, your boss isn't very sympathetic to the fact that suddenly your driverless vehicle had to take a diversion route. I mean, there are real life implications for this. Well, on that, you know, is, is the cost of the thing suddenly going to change on routes? Well, technically it could. What I'd imagine would happen in practice is that there'd be um, predictive algorithms that would say, well, on this day, we're going to charge this much. We think that's going to be sufficient to um, achieve the road space rationing we want to achieve. Um, so I don't think you'll see, you know, the scenario that you um, you, you just described. But Another the wider point yeah. about the kind of social justice of it, will road charging reserve roads for the rich only? Mm. Um, well, that's a much more interesting point, and I think, you know there's going to be a lot of political debate around these things. You systems. could just solve it by saying, you know, why does anyone really need a car in London? We have a tube system. We have buses that, you know, take you to pretty much any route you want. We have an overground system. Yeah, okay, you'd need vehicles to deliver stuff, but do you really need cars? Well, I mean, cars might just become a... It, it might be just a definitional dispute, like all cars are now buses. Yeah. Which then, though, I mean, it's some really interesting stats in your unpacked piece on this, um, kind of talking about this, just the capacity that public transport can shift, yes. i.e. the number of people it can shift. Yes. So there's a great fact here that says that when the Brooklyn Bridge was converted from being part rail to just cars back in 1948, um, it went from carrying 400,000 people per day to carrying just 170,000 per day. So, I mean, you could just simply say, we're only gonna have public transport that, that and those vehicles have to hold significant capacity. Yeah, I mean, if, if you think about a double-decker bus carrying, say, 50 passengers, um, now imagine that on a road, and then imagine next to it, another road, with those 50 people in individual exactly. cars. Yeah. They'd stretch all the way back down the road. I mean, it, it's a whole multiple of, of what's in the what? bus. Sorry, <laughs> but it just does strike me that that could be a great experiment in making people mix with each other as well. It could be like a kind of whole social revolution as well as a kind of technical and, and environmental one. That, you know? my, commute to my commute to work is already this every day. Sure, it's but for some people, you know, with their private drivers, it's not so much. Right, okay. Well, I think I'll you forget. Which actually might link us to the Trump piece that we're going to talk about. But I would say, Charlie, I would point out that we're British and we'll find ways 
days of not talking to one another <laughs> in any conceivable situation. Yeah, certainly when, when you see anyone trying to have a conversation on the tube or on a bus or whatever, you can see everyone around going, oh my gosh, no one involved me in this conversation. Yes. This is weird. <laughs> and, and my first thought is, I hope it's not an American who's talking. <laughs> so please don't do that to us. Don't give us that reputation. Okay, Trump voters. So it's been about a little bit more than a year since Trump voters and all voters uh, cast their ballot. And they're sort of back in the news because of this anniversary, although I think you could say that Trump voters have never been out of the news in the last you know year or so. Mm. But um, you're putting together some sort of interesting evidence that starts to try to explain, like, like everyone's been trying to explain, like how Trump happened. But this is from a much more, um, a, like a social perspective, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the tweet that Trump sent out to his voters on the the anniversary yeah, of his election that. was congratulations. I won't do the accent. Um, congratulations oh, to disappointing Peter. I say I know no Alec Baldwin uh, in so many ways. Uh, <laughs> congratulations to all of the deplorables and the millions of people who gave us a massive electoral college landslide victory. Honestly, in a British accent, deplorable sounds sort of amazing. Yeah, <laughs> of course, deplorables is what Hillary Clinton called the sort of people who vote for, 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 for who support Trump. Um, and But then you, it became sort of a rallying cry. It did, yes, but you know, clearly there is amongst, you know, the, the sort of cultural liberal elites there is not just disagreement with Trump voters, but a kind of deep contempt. And you see this for um, um, directed at Brexit voters as well. You know, they're, they're, they'll be viewed not as just stupid, but trivial and petty. And you know, why, why did these people disrupt the system? You know, what have they got to complain about? Um, and, um, the article which I reference, which is by um, a very wealthy businessman actually called Ray Dalio, um, which is on LinkedIn, um, he um, actually Bridgewater? Ray Dalio? I think so. Yes, I I, I, I don't know his. Uh, I don't. I'm not that familiar. All right, with I'm him. listening. But he he wrote an article saying actually, people that are sort of you know bottom half of America really is really are um in a lot of trouble um they do have some very legitimate grievances and that whether or not you think trump is at all the answer to those grievances those grievances are real and he just runs through a whole set of statistics about how white working class males especially those without college education are faring and they're not doing well how robust is the analogy between like Trump voters and Brexit voters? It's not exact, but there are some there are some commonalities. Yeah, I mean there is, you know, um, say on education levels and things like that, and distance from the main metropolitan centres, there are some you know there's definite definite parallels there, but obviously these things are never perfect. I think this is you know, uh, such an important topic, because I think it is very easy just to dismiss. And, you know, certainly I look over 
the other side of the pond and think, how on earth did that happen? You know, kind of, you hear what Trump has said, you know, you hear the anecdotes about his behaviour, and you just, you just cannot understand it. And yet, when you think about the lives of many of those people who voted for Trump, you know, it, it, it's well known that kind of across the Rust Belt, where, of course, um, we've seen lots of, as Peter's saying, particularly white men just falling out of the labour market entirely, not being unemployed, just disappearing. You know, we've got this um, uh, uh, just so aptly termed kind of, I mean, epidemic in itself, uh, the, the deaths of despair you know people yes. are literally dying from despair so that's kind of yes. you know, the opi opioid overdoses the the suicides um you know this is the this is the kind of the just people not having anything to live for just a complete hopelessness and the problem that we all know very well and has been very well rehearsed is that during the election Trump was the only person who, okay, we might disagree entirely with how he voiced those concerns, but at least he was talking about it in a way that, that Hillary Clinton and certainly, you know, kind of more broadly in both Democrat and actually Republican parties had just completely ignored. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the fact that he was so outlandish, the fact that he was so crude, the fact that he broke so many taboos was actually point, uh, part of the message you know, we, we will elect this guy to show you how unhappy we are. And just, you know, you clearly think very little about what we're most concerned about. Therefore, well, we'll not just that, but you actually look down on us. You yes. actually think that we are bad, appalling people. Yes. And, and you know, so, you know, electing <laughs> Trump is, you know, it's a sign of despair in itself hmm. um, and you know the more ghastly he is the more effective that signal is the more you know blatant the message is but I'm still not sure that you know the political establishments whether Republican or Democrat have woken up to this I mean understandably they're looking at all the various mistakes and grotesqueries of, of the current administration but they shouldn't imagine that, you know, even if he crashes out in the next few years or is sent packing at the next general election, next presidential election, um, that there won't be another populist coming, mm. coming on um, behind him. Well, and the, and, the, and the real tragedy of all of this is that not only has it, or at least seemingly not been a wake-up call to what we might call more mainstream um, uh, politicians and, and, and parties. But actually, the Trump administration is not doing anything to improve this, this massive group of, of, of voters' lives. So, so actually, the mainstream parties are not doing anything. The mainstream politicians are not doing anything. They're not really getting it. They still are looking down on, on these people. But the the guy that these these voters put into the White House is not going to make any difference to their lives either. Yeah, and there's still a big lack of interest in root causes. I mean, there's there looks like to be a, a pretty clear link between family breakdown and all of the other problems, and I think the the causality runs both ways. But certainly, if 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 working class families were, were more robust. Um, then I think they'd be able to weather some of the economic storms better. Yeah. But there seems to be so little interest in, in addressing these issues at all. Um, and it just seems bizarre to me that 
anything that might smack of traditional values in, in, in inverted commas, you know, they're just not interested in touching it. If if you're if you're a you know self-described liberal, then to you know there's a series of taboo subjects that you don't touch. Um, and but perhaps they need to start addressing these, however uncomfortable, because the situation for the people that are clearly voting against um, those liberal attitudes is so severe that you know everything needs to be on the table when it comes to solutions. And you know it's time to sort of leave their own you know leave your own hang-ups um, behind and see what can be done to help because. You know, it seems to me that um, there's, there's, there's no reason to reject possible solutions. You know, we don't have that luxury. Right. I mean, I would say probably right now, even amongst Republicans, when we're talking about family values, it's individual Republican sort of uh, elected officials, but also candidates just trying to prove that they still have them, forget their ability <laughs> to instill them in the communities that they represent. Um, but that is where we're yeah, going, going to leave. Yeah, that's not going so well. Not, 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 uh, so not well. in Alabama, but that is where we leave you today. Um, this was the Unpacked Podcast. Thanks for joining us. And if you could hit the subscribe button that is somewhere on your screen or your phone right now, you can listen to us again next week. Thanks. Mm-hmm.